Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, September 27th, and today Julia Yaffe is here to talk about the growing unrest inside Russia over Vladimir Putin's decision to implement a military draft. Tens of thousands of eligible men have tried to flee the country, and their wives, daughters, sisters, and girlfriends are erupting in anger at the Kremlin. Will this decision backfire on the Russian president? And as he's backed into a corner, how seriously should we take his threat to use nuclear weapons against the West? And later, Bill Cohen is here to talk about SPACs. Wall Street saw a huge influx of these so-called blank check companies back in 2020, but the street isn't really feeling them as of late. Bill has all the facts about SPACs. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ains. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Happy Tuesday, Powers That Be Universe. I am joined today by Julia Yaffe. Um, We talked to Julia last week about the situation in Russia, which is starting to feel a little unpredictable, a little more volatile than it has over the last six months. Maybe, Julia, I'm wrong here. But, you know, since we talked last week, Putin raised the specter of using nuclear weapons. He, uh, you know, has instituted a draft, a mobilization. Young men are fleeing the country under the threat of arrest. But because things are moving so fast, I just want to get an update from you. First of all, how is this mobilization playing out? You tweeted out a meme on Monday, and it was that famous meme of, like, the girl looking at her boyfriend, looking at the other girl. And you're just like, <laughs> someone photoshopped out the dude. <laughs> it's like a, like Russia, like they just raptured all the men out of Russia. And like, there's no, there's no dudes left. Um, how is it playing out? Very, very badly. At this point, you can see drone images, even satellite images of all the border crossings in Russia into Georgia, into Kazakhstan, just mobbed, like lines of cars stretching for miles, people waiting for hours, for days. Uh, there were reports of Chechen cops pulling Chechen men out of cars to draft them, essentially. What airplane tickets there were quintupled in price, and soon there were no tickets left. By Monday, we saw that the border authorities had been given lists of basically the draft lists, and and men were getting turned away from planes and getting turned around at the border. Uh, There's talk that they're going to close the Russian border to all men, if not completely. Over the weekend, a figure came out, according to the FSB, Over 260,000 men have left Russia since the announcement of the mobilization on Thursday. And that's a significant figure because if you recall, the original number that Putin wanted to call up was 300,000, right? So basically the number he wanted to call up has basically fled the country. What is also interesting is that a lot of regions, especially that are populated by ethnic minorities, are 
protesting. The women, the mothers, the wives are protesting. They're really getting into it with cops. They're screaming at them. They're pushing back. They are done. You know, the ethnic minorities have done the bulk of the fighting and dying in this, ironically, in this war for Putin's pan-Slavic nationalist vision. And they're kind of done sending their their children to be cannon fodder in this um, Slavic war of empire. And a friend was telling me that her uncle, who is a 76-year-old artillery officer in retirement, got a notice to come in and kind of report and show himself and kind of report on his condition, essentially, to see, you know, how how with it and alert he still was due to 76. So shit's not good. So let me ask you this. I've I spent the morning like digging through videos of the protests in Iran um, against the regime there led by women. Um, and it's convulsing the country, uh, you know, at a scale not currently happening right now, at least in Russia. But you know, in Russia, Putin is subject a little bit more to public opinion. You know, it's notionally a democracy. I know like the elections are more or less rigged, but it feels like Iran is slightly more of a repressive autocracy banning the internet, et cetera, than Russia. Am I wrong about that? Because it feels like Putin is is subject in some way to public opinion where the Iranian regime kind of doesn't give a shit about that. But I would say that Iran actually has kind of elections in a way that Russia doesn't. Russia has a massive repressive police state of a scope and size that I'm not sure Iran does. And so far, we're seeing them come down really hard on the protesters. On Monday, we saw a poet activist read a poem praising Ukraine and trashing Russia. He was arrested taken back to the police precinct and raped with a dumbbell. And then the cops essentially made a video of that and made his girlfriend watch the video. Putin still has his main constituency and they are still loyal to him. And those are the security forces. Those are the guys with guns. And I think they know that if they don't defend Putin and they don't defend the regime, the end will come for them too. But the fact that so many people have fled, the fact that there is this kind of resistance in Dagestan, in Yakutia, these ethnic enclaves that are ruled kind of with an iron fist and therefore deliver in these quote-unquote elections, deliver results like 93% for Putin or 95% for his ruling United Russia Party. The fact that they're rising up is indicative of maybe how done the people are. Like, especially the women feel that they don't have much to lose if their sons are getting sent into a meat grinder. Exactly. I do not mean to diminish the brutality of, of Putin and the, and the Russian state and the security forces as they exist. I guess my question was more, and you just answered it, I think, like, how much does the popular reaction, the discontent at this mobilization effort, like, what kind of political impact could it actually have on Vladimir Putin? Well... So far, it's having the effect that, you know, the war has finally come to the Russians. It's like their February 24th. The way that February 24th was for Ukrainians, the war has now come home to Russians in a way that it didn't back in February. Putin was able to maintain 
an absolutely surreal sense of normalcy for Russians, especially in the big cities. And that is why Putin kept putting off this decision, putting off this decision, I think because there was a sense that Russians supported this war while it was just on their TV screens. But maybe they didn't want to go fight it and didn't really want to sacrifice their lives or their comfort for it. And now we're seeing that really getting borne out, whether it has a wider effect, whether this discontent bubbles into something bigger and more politically deadly for Putin. We'll see. It's been less than a week. But I mean, this is bad, bad, bad for Putin. So your judgment on this invasion in a variety of ways has been pretty damn good throughout this process. Um, And one thing I think we talked about was nuclear weapons. And you said, why should we think that Vladimir Putin wouldn't use nuclear weapons? Especially if he's a rat in a cage backed into a corner. Feels like that some days and over the last few weeks. You know, he gave this address to the country last Wednesday. I think it was one of Mm -hmm. his first big addresses since the war began. And he said, using nuclear weapons is a possibility. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, quote, this is not a bluff. Mm -hmm. But how seriously now do you take Vladimir Putin? I mean, I think I already know what you're going to say, but like, what's your response to his latest comments on not bluffing about using nukes? I'm torn because I think when somebody says I'm not bluffing, it's kind of like, Oh, so you're bluffing? (laughs) (laughs) Vlad doth protest too much. Yeah, it's like it's a rat who's backed into a corner, but it's still a rat. There are a number of ways to use nuclear weapons. He can also, for example, shoot a nuclear weapon into space and mess up a bunch of satellites and communications, which would be extremely inconvenient for all of us. He could also use a tactical nuclear weapon which is much, much smaller than what we saw, for example, at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And that would take out something like a few city blocks and so radiation, but isn't the kind of scale of devastation that we saw in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And you could see him doing that, for example, on the battlefield to wipe out like a good section of the Ukrainian army, right? And then then what do we do? And talking to my sources in the Biden administration, I think they feel that it's not imminent, but they feel that the chance is not zero and that it's growing. The chance of him using nuclear weapons is growing. The worse he's doing, the more likely it gets, but it's still not like, you know, 50%. I mean, anything greater than 0% freaks me the fuck out. As it should, as it should. I think he wanted to scare us He likes using Western fears of conflict and escalation against ourselves. And I think that's why you had Jake Sullivan pushing back on Sunday and saying, you know, the effects would be catastrophic. He said that repeatedly. And that was, you know, him publicly messaging back to Putin. You get the sense, though, that like um, China or like India, a country that hasn't put sanctions on Russia would be livid at the idea of using nuclear weapons you know like they're they're like he has some allies out there who would be like dude don't do this yeah i think that is an excellent point i think that it wouldn't just be the west that would be mad i think it would be other countries who'd be like are you fucking kidding me right now but i don't know that if he gets to that point where he thinks it's worth it where he's that scared for himself that i don't think he'll be giving much of a shit about what Xi Jinping or Narendra Modi think about him because he will be trying to save his own ass. Yeah, I mean, the the 
most insightful thing you ever told me about Putin was he sees himself as simply a czar yeah. existing in the year 2022. And he is he is the ruler of Russia and yeah. a deeply sinister conspiratorial guy. And we should take him at his word. <laughs> what was the Louis XIV line? You know, l'état c'est moi. He is the state. It's like goes without saying in Russia, I, I guess. Yeah. All right, Julia, thank you. Um, last week, you gave me a little bit of hope. You leavened your hope this week with um, some darkness. So um, <laughs> true, to, true to form. Thank you. <laughs> You're so welcome. All right. See you next week. I hope. Bye, Peter. When we come back, Ben Landy talks to Bill Cohan about SPACs. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what The Playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy, here with the Wall Street Whisperer himself, Mr. Bill Cohan. How are you doing, Bill? Ben, it's great to see you today. Thank you for having me. This feels like as good a day as any to talk about the markets. We're recording this on Monday afternoon, shortly after the British pound plummeted. And in so many ways, it's just another consequence, I think, of the inflationary world economy we collectively engineered over the last decade or so. Uh, by artificially depressing interest rates for more than a decade. And of course, that's now all painfully unwinding itself. But it's also as good a time as any to um, check in on our friends in the SPAC industry, which I put up there alongside GameStop and AMC and Sanity as sort of a high watermark for last year's pre-peak late-stage euphoria in the markets. So how is the SPAC industry doing these days? First of all, I mean, you, you got to give the... SPAC, quote-unquote, SPAC industry, a little context in that SPACs have been around for 25, 30 years, maybe even longer. I mean, one could argue that like the Goldman Sachs trading company in the 1920s and all of the trusts that were formed for the Goldman Sachs trading company, you know, were the precursors of SPACs, which were just a form of asking investors to pony up their money now and we'll tell you what we're investing in later and you know trust us because we're smart investors we know what we're doing and one of the interesting innovations of late stage SPACs special purpose acquisition companies is that there are actually some benefits that have been baked into the structure of it for investors so First of all, um, there's a time limit. You know, if the SPAC goes public and then within two years hasn't found a private company to merge with to take public, then the SPAC unwinds and the investors get their money back with a little bit of interest 
and the SPAC sponsor, you know, has to eat the underwriting fees. So they get kind of zapped if they don't get a deal done. And that, I think, balances out the huge benefits that go to a SPAC sponsor who can basically, uh, depending on what kind of SPAC it is, buy 20% of the company or have 20% of the publicly traded company for free. And they are able to do a deal, get their investment banking fees uh, and other fees paid for by the merged company in the combination. That helps balance out some of the disproportionality in what's going on here or what has been going on here. But basically, the SPAC market is deader than a doornail, uh, as it rightly should be, because nobody should uh, be thinking about participating in a SPAC. I could see, you know, from a sponsor's point of view, my why it might be lucrative if you can get something done. But eating those investment banking fees, underwriting fees, if you can't, is going to got to be pretty painful. So I think the, you know, the market uh, for SPACs is dead. And we're rightly now dealing with the fallout from either SPACs that are still waiting to do deals that have time left on their two-year time limit, SPACs that have done deals for private companies, brought these private companies public, and now we're dealing with the fallout uh, of those public offerings, which are significant. You wrote the other day that Chamath Palihapitiya the venture capitalist in Silicon Valley who became the sort of SPAC king of the moment. He raised like a half dozen SPACs or something like that to take public companies like Virgin Galactic, Open Door, SoFi, that he had capitulated this past week when he announced that he was closing up shop for two of his latest SPACs, which um, never found a company to de-SPAC with, and he's returning the money to investors. You've been pretty hard on Chamath for hyping up these companies that he's taken public and also selling a large part of his own stake in them. But do you think there should be more protections for retail investors or disclosures to stop this kind of thing from happening? Or is it just sort of how it goes in a market where things go up, things go down, and, and people inevitably get burned along the way? You know, you could loosely refer to SPACs as, quote unquote, an innovation born of uh, bull markets easy money markets, which certainly was the case in the 1920s and, you know, has been the case from time to time ever since when they get popular. I mean, part of me thinks things like this should just be totally outlawed because either they're not going to end well for retail investors or they're going to grossly enrich the sponsors in ways that are truly disgusting. Like with Tremoth, I mean, he's a billionaire in large part because of his, you know, reaping the benefit out of the SPAC markets that came at the expense of the silly, stupid retail investors who bought into Chamath land. On the other hand, part of me also thinks that we live in a free market, uh, pretty much of a free society sometimes and uh, not always. And, you know, if people want to latch on to an investment scheme and you know, see what they can get away with. If investors sort of obviously willingly participate along the way, then, you know, who's to say they can't do that? And some of them are smart enough to get in at various times and get out and make a lot of money. But most of them aren't smart enough to do that or clever enough or lucky enough. And so they get totally singed while the sponsors, you know, walk off with, as in case of Chamath, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. So, 
by the time the SEC or anybody else gets around to regulating SPACs, they're dead anyway. So, uh, you know, it was a two-year bubble and it's over now. And so there's no real need to regulate something that's dead anyway. What do you think Chamath should have done instead? Because some of these companies he took public are actually decent companies, potentially on the face of it. SoFi, Open Door, maybe not Virgin Galactic, but nobody held a gun to the head of investors and told them to bid up the price of these things, 5X, 8X, 10X. Inevitably, they came crashing down because those prices didn't make any kind of sense. Obviously, he may have encouraged increase in those prices along the way with his appearances on CNBC or tweeting about the companies. But should he have been forced to hold on to his stake in those companies? Again, there are uh, rules about how long uh, the sponsor has to hold on to his stock. In other words, when he can sell stock in the SPAC. Maybe those, those time periods should be lengthened out so we get like a full cycle under our belts. SPACs are designed to trade for $10 a share, which is just a convenience, really. You know, whatever the money is that's raised divided by uh, shares that gets you to $10 is, you know, how they're designed. You know, really, they just trade around $10 a share until there's started to be noises about what they might be buying, rumors about what private company they might merge with or buy. And then that's it's between the time of the IPO of the SPAC and the closing of the merger that the SPAC stock really becomes quite volatile and, and you know investors can go crazy bidding them up, like with the, the idea to merge the SPAC with Donald Trump's media company. I mean, it just went crazy. Of course, now it's coming back to earth without even a merger being done, and it looks like that may never happen. But a lot of investors bid up the stock of one of Chamath's SPACs uh, after it was announced he was going to, or the rumors that that he was going to merge with Virgin Galactic. And then only after the merger took place and it was Virgin Galactic that was the public company that was now trading, uh, you know, and the fact that it, whatever, makes no money or its business proposition is ridiculous uh, to begin with. It's more like a, a novelty project than an actual company that it begins to trade down slowly but surely, you know, sink like the sun in the West. Um, it just becomes really problematic in the way these deals are, are structured and get done. And I just don't really see any value in the structure in any way that anybody benefits except for the, the sponsors, you know, the smart, wise guys who take advantage of retail investors. I mean, it sort of was billed as a way for, you know, you and I uh, to invest in, you know, fast growing private companies, you know, like the big boys in Silicon Valley. I mean, come on. If you ever think that that's really uh, going to happen, really an opportunity, then, you know, I got a bridge in Brooklyn I can sell you to. There are still hundreds of SPACs out there that are looking for a target. Four or five hundred. Four or five hundred. All with the clock ticking. How many of those do you think are actually going to de-SPAC or will have to liquidate and return funds to investors? At this like phase of the market, I would say that 90% will have to go out of business and return money to investors, which I think is a, you know, all a good thing. And the sponsors will have to eat the underwriting fees, which really kind of 
makes me happy, to be honest. Um, these guys who thought, uh, and it's, and of course, mostly guys, uh, thought that they were going to get rich quick are now going to get singed by the underwriting fees that they paid. So as usual, Wall Street uh, is just fine. They made their underwriting fees. Of course, they'll be followed on Wall Street too because all of those high-flying SPAC bankers in 2020 and 2021 who really thought their shit didn't stink uh, are probably going to get fired at this point. Uh, There's really nothing left for them uh, to do uh, or very little. And, uh, you know, there'll be some weird kind of justice in that too. Well, Bill, we'll take Puck public uh, via SPAC once the market bounces back. Well, we don't want to go like the BuzzFeed route. (laughs) That's that's right. Uh, You know, we don't want to look like BuzzFeed at the end of the day here. But thanks as always for your non-financial advice, financial advice. Pleasure to be with you as always, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.